hello! Welcome back to the Going Coastal Podcast, the podcast of the Students and New Professionals chapter of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and hosted by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Marissa Torres. And I'm your other co-host, John Miller. It is a new month, a new year, and we are excited to kick off 2023 with a student research spotlight episode where we turn the mic over to a current or recent student to share with us and you guys their research project. And we're joined today by Dr. Chris Lehman, a recent PhD graduate of the University of New South Wales, UNSW, in Sydney, Australia, where he worked in a in their world-renowned water research laboratory. Now you're wondering, how did we get connected with Chris all the way across the other side of the globe? Well, Chris recently attended the International Conference of Coastal Engineers, ICCE. Maybe some of you were there. Maybe you guys uh, saw his presentation. He presented his some of his research, and that's where he met John. So here we are. Welcome, Chris, to Going Coastal, and we're happy to have you on the show. Hi, guys. It's great to be here. That, that was a little bit of a fib. I, I was a little bit familiar with Chris's research prior <laughs> to going to ICCE, but uh, you are you are correct. In fact, his presentation did kind of just cement the fact that he was he was the guest that we wanted to have on this episode. So. Uh, really impressive uh, work there, Chris. Thanks, John. <laughs> so generally, again, welcome, Chris. Uh, we like to start these shows by getting to know you as an individual. So what is what has been your journey through life academically, professionally, you know, uh, what got you into coastal and and what's your journey from where you started to where you are now? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, like a lot of people, I kind of fell into coastal engineering. Um, I did civil engineering at undergrad um, at the University of Queensland, and I didn't really know where I wanted to take it. Um, I liked structures. I liked the fluid mechanics. And it wasn't until kind of third or fourth year where I had the opportunity to delve more into the coastal space. And that kind of coastal area seems to be a good interface between so many different um, so many different areas or aspects. Um, so you have th- the obvious boundary between the land and the sea, but we put so many structures in the coastal zone that you know you have to be across structural engineering coastal engineering fluid dynamics in order to get um kind of that really broad understanding of how to make things stand and stand in in the uh coastline so i kind of came at it from a structures and um fluid dynamics perspective um where i after graduating i went and worked at a consultancy um, for seven years and then had enough of that and went back into academia where I've done my PhD at UNSW Water Research Lab. And that was more going into kind of hazard prediction, hazard forecasting um, rather than structures. And that's been a good, great pivot to kind of do something related but different. So the last uh, yeah four years, I've been working on my PhD. I'm so glad that's over and done now. Um, and currently, I'm doing a postdoc um, at WRL, the same lab. And I'm also working for a local government council um, up here in Brisbane, Queensland. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Rock on. 
So yeah, kind of a lot going on. I'd say. Um, what made you want to stay and continue like a postdoc after your PhD? It was a pretty easy decision. Um, so my th- my um, my thesis my thesis centered on building up a theoretical framework of how do we actually go about predicting coastal hazards. And so that was four years of doing mainly theoretical, analytical research, looking at past events. Um, But my postdoc is actually going on and implementing that in a kind of trial, early warning system approach. So it seemed like the best kind of I don't know, it was a little bit of a PhD extension and I was kind of already invested in the project and I kind of wanted to see my baby grow up and go into the real world. So I uh, stayed on and, and uh, I'm finishing up that postdoc soon. That's awesome. Um, it's, it's interesting. A lot of, I, one of the reasons that we wanted to, I wanted to have you on is because, you know, you say, why, why, why do we have this student from Australia? We're American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and like, what's the, What's the linkage? And I, I, you know, I think it's kind of interesting to hear a little bit about some of the parallels um, between sort of the pathways that people take in the United States versus, you know, elsewhere. And having personally spent some time in Australia at University of Queensland, which I did not know until now that you were you were there as an undergraduate. Um, we may have talked about it and it just slipped my mind. But um, I think it's interesting because your story mirrors a lot of um, what we hear on our end in terms of people falling into coastal engineering. Um, and this is something, the more we talk about it, the more, you know, the value I think I see in certainly the podcast that we're doing here in terms of trying to bring attention to, you know, what I think you would agree is a very rewarding, at least initial career path. Um, and, and it shouldn't be that we fall into it, you know, sort of haphazardly, you know, it should be something that people know a little bit more about, um, and, you know, maybe have a chance or an opportunity to make a purposeful decision to enter this field earlier on. So, you know, is that something that, you know, you know, kind of, how do you feel about something like that? Yeah, it's very funny at the, at the water research lab, there are basically two types of people. So the, the people that get up at 5am, go surfing, uh, basically live on the coast, their whole life revolves around the coast. And then, and then there's people like me who, um, you know, the the coastal space is just an interesting problem, and there are so many different different um, problems to solve around the coastline. Like I'm not a big surfer. I, you know, a beach day is nice, but I don't spend all the time at the beach. Um, and I think a lot of times in our space, it seems like ah, oh, you need to be, you know, at the beach all the time. But no, there are like a lot of different interesting problems to be, to be solved at the beach. Um, in Australia, it's interesting that because the beach lifestyle is, I would kind of say, like a, a big part of Australian culture, um, I think we are kind of more, more in tune with the opportunities there. Like kids grow up around the beach. They have basically surf life-saving for kids. Um, you know, being taught to swim at an early age is, is, is a big part of, you know, education and school. So in Australia, at least there's a lot of focus on kind of water and, and living on the coastline. Um, and compared to kind of somewhere in the, in the States where it might be a bit more varied, um, I can see how it might be a, a bit more difficult to get people involved. But I think in Australia, we're, we're pretty lucky in that um, 
there is that kind of big focus on the coast here. Yeah, I think that would definitely kind of mirror some of my experience in that, you know, we 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 have similar groups of people, right? There's, yeah, I've had graduate students that have, again, like you said, spend their life at the coast, grow up surfing and all that. I, I myself don't surf. I've tried it a couple of times. I'm terrible at it. Um, <laughs> I have a hard time paddling, let alone standing <laughs> up. Um, uh, but and then we also have uh, people that are just like, just like yourself that are just fascinated in the problem and um, you know, may come from in the United States may come from like, you know, the, the central part of the U S that, you know, not, not near any major water body, but, you know, just fall in love with, uh, you know, you, I think you touched on it too, so like the complexity of the problem, right? So it's that interface where, where all the actions happening and that's, that's what makes it so cool. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the other side of it, right. Is this really, um, uh, this area where there's so much, um, that we still need to know, right? There's so much opportunity. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's what's, that's really cool um, about working in coastal. Yeah, definitely. And comparing to, so in, at the University of New South Wales, we kind of have a separate coastal water research laboratory, but we also have a water research center and they kind of focus more on rainfall, stormwater, inland flooding. And it's, there is a bit of a, like a, a technical gap between them. It always feels like coastal, the coastal space is just like a little bit behind what's going on in um, kind of more inland flooding and, and rainfall and river flow um, research. So there are definitely still a lot of low hanging fruit to, uh, to be picked off um, in, in the research space. And yeah, there's always so many ideas floating around, so much work to do. Um, so yeah, there definitely isn't a, a lack of opportunity there. So I'm curious, um, what, so you, you people grew up at the beach. You also kind of grew up at the beach, but you were more interested in kind of like the physics. It's a very complex problem. And you mentioned that you were really interested in like the structures and the fluid mechanics is what got you. And you kind of like were able to merge that with coastal engineering to an extent. I was just curious like what about the structures component like that interested you in the first place and have you uh considered like has that influenced how you approach this your hazard your current research with hazard prediction and forecasting yeah that's a great question um i guess when it comes down to it what we are actually interested in is how the community and how infrastructure and how structures can withstand the hazards so it's something that I always try to have in the back of my mind. You know, it's great being able to predict the wave energy or wave run up and how tall things are or how much things are going to be impacted. But at the end of the day, what we're actually interested in is, is in what is the impact going to be on the community? What is the impact going to be on, on the structures? So having that kind of structural backgrounds has helped keep me um has helped keep that in the back of my mind at all times um it's it's more about that holistic approach that is is always um yeah important to to keep in mind yeah i have to say that that community focus um is another thing that it you know impressed me um you know i had the opportunity to read your thesis but um, in particular, in the the presentation at ICCE, that community focus um, is something. It's a shared. It's a, it's a passion that I share with you in terms of, you know, taking this 
really difficult problem and making it real, right? Like what, what, what can we do? How can we positively impact the community? So that really impressed me. So let's get, I guess, let's get into a, a little bit about that in your, in your actual, um, research, um, so I know you've, I've seen, I saw a three minute thesis that you had done. We'll talk more about that later. So you're comfortable, I'm sure, talking about, um, about your work. So let's, you know, like just big picture, let's just start big picture. And then maybe we'll drill into certain aspects that we find interesting. But big picture, what do you do? Um, so I kind of look at how do we actually predict coastal hazards um, and what are the impacts going to be on kind of community and infrastructure? Um, so. The main aspect of my work was how do we predict these hazards on a regional scale? So we're talking hundreds or thousands of kilometers. Um, at the smaller scale, so if we're looking at a beach by beach or embayment by embayment scale, we can run these fancy X-beach type of numerical models that you know give us a decent idea of what's actually going to be happening, like how much is a beach going to be eroded or how much uh, or how high is the water level going to get. But if we, sorry, if we try to do that at the regional scale, so if we try to do those fancy numerical predictions over hundreds or thousands of kilometers of coastlines, well, we just don't have the computational resources to, to do that. So those, you know, those models take, uh, hours or days to even run. So it's not really feasible to get uh, erosion or flooding forecast over that um, spatial scale. So what kind of I've been working on is how do we do that forecast in a simple and efficient way? So by relying on kind of things that we can easily calculate by having data that we can easily obtain or forecast, um, how can we get the best possible forecast over the largest area that we can? And the aim of this is to actually help governments and stakeholders and communities prepare in the uh, as, a, as a storm is approaching. So if you're a government, where do you need to allocate your resources um, to prepare for a storm? Where do you need to start sandbagging? Where do you need to evacuate people? Um, so it's being able to help mitigate the impacts of an approaching storm um, potentially before they happen. So that's kind of where I've been focused on. There are different ways to communicate at different levels, right? So if you're trying to, if you're aggregating all of these these processes, these data, where you're simplifying the process in, you know, as best as you can without sacrificing accuracy, I'm assuming. And there's different ways to communicate the output from that. So what what kind of outputs are you providing to emergency managers, uh, for example, versus you know, what kind of information goes out to the community and how have you, um, you know, worked towards communicating that aspect? Yeah, this is a really tricky problem that we've had to think a lot about. So as academics, we tend to get all interested in the details and what's what models running what, what parameter are we using? But at the end of the day, to the community and to the stakeholders, they don't really care about that. They want to know, where do we need to move people? Where do we need to build protection? And it doesn't really matter, you know, what 
what data you used or what um, what parameter you tweaked to get the result. They need to know actions of, of what they need to do. So you need to be really conscious in being able to distill your model outputs and results into something that's practical and actionable. So what we've done is basically taken our model results and tried to present it in a really simple kind of traffic light system. So green is everything's okay, yellow, you should keep an eye out, and red is you need to do um, some preventive, pre- preventative action. Um, and so keeping it kind of simple and intuitive on the first kind of overview um, of how you present a hazard forecast is, is really key. And then the option to have more information at particular locations. So if you click on a particular spot that you're interested in, um, you can get more detail of where the water level is going to get to, how much erosion there's going to be, when that's going to occur. Um, So being able to efficiently communicate a whole lot of detail um, is quite tricky, but also, also important. Um, and the other thing that comes into that is kind of liability. Um, so our kind of what my work is do, aiming to do is to help the, the the local governments, so the people who go and try evacuate people or build temporary protection. So we inform them and then the local governments can, you know, alert the public or assign resources. So, you know, as as they say, not what was the saying? As they say, all models are wrong, but some are less wrong than others. Um, you know, there's always a degree of uncertainty in, in each model, um, and it's actually having a human at the end of that model output to make decisions and then do the actions. That's that's really important. I think the, the the phrase that I use, all models are wrong, but some are useful, is the is is the, is the version that's the, I mean, it's the Americanized version. I don't know. Um, but since you since you started to trend down that, and I think I don't know if I mentioned this to Marissa, one of the the captivating images in Chris's presentation had to do when he was basically talking about this idea of you know models and you know how models are it depends on kind of what you put in. And he had this great emoji where he had poop going into a poop emoji going into the model and then golden poop coming out. And I thought that was so hilarious. That that just that, that almost that just made me start laughing in the middle of his presentation. But it's so true. Right? Garbage in, garbage out. All my numerical modelers out there. <laughs> you guys know. And I should have, and I should have, I should have warned you, Chris, before you walked into this. But Marissa, Marissa is a is a modeler chick. Yep, she is like <laughs> very familiar with the pains, the growing pains, and the small glimpses of success. Uh, and that's what we strive for, really. It's what we live for is the small glimpses of success. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so difficult because you know tinkering with your model getting the latest version of the model is is the fun stuff but um you know Uh, having to okay yeah to some people (laughs) it's like 80 percent failure 20 percent success on a good day so but the alternative is you know you have to go out and do a big data collection uh campaign which 
you know, it can be fun for the first couple of days, but if it drags on, it's, uh, it can get tiresome quickly. But yeah, the having the data is um, obviously a, a, a key component of any model output. For sure, right? You know, a, 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 a brief discussion. So we're talking about data, right? And like a, a lot of being familiar with it, right? Uh, it, it, you, you rely heavily on having that information in the data. So can you talk a little bit about maybe the importance of collecting data, um, you know, what I would say is that I, I would always tell my students that when I started, and I'm not that old, when I started in coastal, we would consider coastal engineering a data poor science because we just didn't have enough information. We never had enough shoreline measurements or profile measurements or wave measurements to be able to do any, you know, real impressive statistical stuff, right? Um, but now that's kind of slow, not slowly, very rapidly changing. Um, so can you talk a little bit about data and data availability and the importance of you know, collecting this information that it makes your kind of work possible. Oh uh, yeah, it's it's definitely key. Um, if we didn't have the data available, I mean, you can't do anything, right? Um, so one of the great data sets that I got to be a part of was the Narrabeen Colliery data set. So that's been going on for forty years, and well, forty plus years now, um, and that's forty years of cross-shore beach profile transects um, at Narrabeen Colliery Beach, which is just north of Sydney CBD. So that's obviously a, a very important data set when you're looking at long-term predictions. Um, and recently, we obviously have more in terms of satellite-derived shorelines. So Killian Boss's COSAT obviously has been a great free tool that anyone can use to extract shoreline measurements from Sentinel and Landsat satellites. Um, and that has obviously, you know, given researchers a whole new, uh, a whole new bunch of toys to play with in, in terms of what we can do with that. Um, the alternative, or not alternative, but another aspect is having wave modeling. So basically being able to get hindcasts of wave, uh, wave conditions around the globe has been really, um, really valuable in allowing us to see how the forcing affects our beaches. Um, so it definitely is an exciting time in terms of the rapidly increasing availability of data, both at kind of the local scale and the global scale. Um, and we're seeing more kind of um, data-driven approaches in the coastal space. Um, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, I went into my PhD thinking I need to know a lot about kind of the numerics and the, you know, I don't know, Navier-Stokes and sediment transport and all that type of stuff. Um, but I really ended up learning more about data science and how to process large amounts of data and uh, analyze them efficiently. So there definitely is a shift, um, I think, into into being able to use and manipulate large amounts of data in the coastal space. We all are essentially data scientists and data analysts in our own right with our current jobs. Like it's insane that yeah, that's yeah. A, a whole degree now. And we pretty much have that just in experience alone. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you'd be able to do much if you, you know, didn't know how to process 
a couple of years worth of shoreline data or transform some wave data from one place to another or yeah there are just so many different things you need to do on a daily basis that it kind of just like becomes a little bit second nature yeah and not always intuitive if you don't have you know someone to guide you through that process i remember like in grad school i was trying to oh i just wanted to get this wind speed data from an NDBC buoy, which is the our like US National Data Buoy Center offshore buoy. And I didn't know that it needed to be corrected for height before I could compare it <laughs> with like my numerical model. Like it's just not common knowledge, you know, in my opinion, as a fresh master's student, you know? Just, <laughs> you know, those little things that you pick up along the way. Yeah. I think it's curious. Um for any non-modelers out there, when we say like garbage in equals garbage out, that garbage is data. That's what we're talking about. So it's your wind speed, it's your all all sorts of inputs, right? So water, water level, waves, winds, uh, to bathymetry, with and and all sorts of things, right? Um, I guess I, I'm curious if you've. I don't know the answer to this question that I'm about to ask, but I guess just curious, like what the, <laughs> like, uh, you know, data rich versus data poor in Australia versus the US, like how much do you have? Like, um, it sounds like you have a pretty good, I, I want to say database uh, or just uh, approach to collecting data in Australia. And I feel like the US is is very haphazard and patchwork. I'm wondering if, you've had any experience with that or if, if you could speak to that at all? Yeah, definitely. Um, so like in the US, it varies state by state. So in New South Wales, we have this great seamless topo, topo bathy data set. So extending from lands all the way um, to the near shore. So, you know, more than minus 10 meters for us. Um, and that's been a fabulous data set just to be able to, to work with. Um, conversely, on the other side of Australia, so in Western Australia, um, we're kind of relying on data sets that are, you know, 10 plus years old and have all these different corrections and need to have uh, be blended together in, in a way that you don't get this like massive drop off where a where one data set ends and another begins. So it, it definitely varies between states. Um, and I think as we continue uh, research in general, the importance of having good data becomes more and more, um, it becomes yeah, more and more obvious. Um, the things that we do with the data, we can only do because we have the data. So there is more effort I think in getting funding and money to do those data collection programs because they're not cheap. At the end of the day, sending someone out on a boat to go do transects up and down the coast to record the bathymetry is not a cheap exercise, but it is a critical part of understanding what's happening at our coastlines. That that is so true, and I think I'm just going to piggyback on that and and say that and make my own plea for more funding to collect data because, you know, we've have, uh, you know, at the federal level and at the state level, because, you know, I know very familiar, we used to at Stevens run a nearshore uh, observation network, collecting wave data, water level data, 
atmospheric data and even videos, you know, and this was back in the, in the nineties, I think. Um, and it's one of those things I used to always say that, you know, buying, getting, getting, buying a new instrument is easy because I used to say that's sexy, right? You can sell that to somebody, right? Hey, I want to buy this new instrument and I can collect all this great data. Maintaining that over the long term, that is not as sexy. And people are so much less willing to fund that. They'd rather fund somebody else's new instrument than to maintain or sustain that data set. But really, it's that sustained data sets, those sustained data sets that become really important. Um, so it is great to see, you know, the stuff like the CoSAT that's coming out where you have these sustained data sets. Now we're just understanding more how to make use of what's there. Yeah, I mean, all data uh, and model output is riddled with uncertainty, whether it's one of those <laughs> aleatory or epistemic, which I still get confused all the time. I have to look them up. I yeah, yeah. Oh, there's, <laughs> there's so many categories, yeah. I think. <laughs> right? So I guess um, I forget where my original question was going, but when you mentioned uncertainty, I guess I wanted to ask, like, how do you handle that and how do you communicate that both to you know, and at the different levels, right? The emergency manager level and at the public level. How do you how do you guys go about that at the at the water? What do you the water research laboratory? Yeah. Um, to be honest, probably not great. Um <laughs> uncertain. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna be upfront and say it is definitely something that's been in the little bit too hard bucket for a while. Um just because there is so much uncertainty. Um, so yeah, as you were saying, uncertainty in the data, uncertainty in the models, and being able to kind of isolate isolate different um, different uncertainties. So if you get a bad result, is, was it because your data is bad or was it because your model is bad? Um, and being able to pick that apart. So I guess how we deal with it is basically people um you get that saying not saying but people will instinctively trust or distrust a model um you know someone will look at a model results and be like no those are wrong or oh yeah they, they look about right um so i think humans are still part of that um output model forecast loop um and it, yeah, it's it's definitely a tricky question, and probably something that needs a lot more work to be done. Sure, maybe in communicating, like I guess, like what it is. Um, it it's kind of a nebulous kind of ether concept. I feel like to most folks who don't work with numbers. Mm. I feel like this is very niche to people who work with work in zeros and ones. Um, yeah, maybe, uh, or I guess you know, maybe not. Uncertainty means different things to different people. So I guess in your experience and your own words, like, what does uncertainty mean to you? I think it's basically how much can you trust a model and the results that it's giving you. So in Australia. Probably the number one, I, th I think the the number one example of how uncertainty gets brought up is with our Bureau of Meteorology when they do their rain forecast. So in Australia, we get 
like a, a, a rain forecast that says, you know, 20% chance of rain today. And if you, if you see 20%, most people think, oh, it's, it's not going to rain. Um, rather than there's a 20% chance of rain. So in terms of kind of how humans perceive uncertainty, um, I don't think we're that good at doing that either. So communicating that and communicating it in a way that people can understand instinctually is, I think, still quite difficult. I agree. I agree. I did take, um, I took this risk analysis and risk management course. It was like a one year, six class, uh, online kind of thing. And I mainly took it because they had one class all about uncertainty and quantifying uncertainty. And I'm like, this is the information that I need to know to communicate the uncertainty for my models. That was just one class out of six. And so in the other five classes, you know, we learned yeah. about. <laughs> What is risk? What is risk analysis? What is risk management? What is that process? And how do you communicate that ultimately? And I that kind of leads into right your traffic light system. That is one of the easiest ways to communicate to the community is green, yellow, red. People understand what that means and that is inherently embedded in a risk matrix. So I was wondering if you want to elaborate on this storm hazard matrix that your uh, forecasting system, does it produce a storm hazard matrix for different hazards? Or is that is that an output? Or is that one of your, like you create that almost as an input to help inform to a certain extent? You want to explain on that? Yeah, yeah. So the storm hazard matrix was one of the things that we came up with in my PhD th thesis. And so we we categorize basically erosion hazards on one of the matrix's axis. So you have coastal flooding hazards on one axis and beach erosion hazards on another axis. And so there are four kind of cells on each axis, which gives you a total of 16 possible combinations of different types and severities of hazards. And so what this is meant to do is to give governments and stakeholders an idea of how much flooding there will be and how much erosion there's going to be because you can have different combinations of of those two hazards so in australia we don't really see those large storm surges that you might get in the gulf of mexico we don't really have you know 10 plus feet of, of storm surges ripping through um, communities but what we do have is kind of well we do have the potential for long prolonged storm events so where we have periods of really high wave energy but we don't get that elevated storm surge so what happens is our beach and our dunes aren't overtopped but they continue to erode and that's requires a fairly different management option compared to if you had you know 10 feet of, of storm surge going up your beach um, so it's it's a tool that government and stakeholders can use to kind of simplify what a type and severity of, of hazard might might 
be in, in, an, in an event. Chris did a great job of trying to explain that having seen this, this matrix, you know, it, I, I've been using a term a lot. My grad students are kind of making fun of me because I think I'm overusing it, but <laughs> I've been using the term elegant simplicity um, to kind of describe things. And that's the way that I would describe this matrix that Chris is, is, is trying to, uh, you know, get everybody to visualize. So, um, you know, it really does in a, amazing job of kind of bringing those two hazards together and kind of illustrating sort of how they interplay with one another. Um, and when I first read his thesis, that was one of the things that stood out. And it was just, again, this elegant simplicity of this matrix and, you know, the application of it to the, to the, the warning system, you know, that's, you know, that's another aspect of it, but just at the very, you know, core of it, the simplicity of that matrix, um, um, really kind of, kind of stands out. So I would invite, you know, I'll, I'll give, we'll give Chris a chance to plug some of his publications and we'll try to link them in the, uh, in the description to the, the podcast. But, um, I'd invite you to check it out because it's, it's, it is really cool. Yeah. Just on that, it's, we spent so much time discussing how many categories there should be, how should it be laid out? What do we call the names, uh, of, of, of each category. And it was, it was surprising for me as, you know, a student going through that process of how much work you need for something that looks relatively simple. Um, yeah, it was, it was more than I thought it would be. Well, it, it was, it, it, you did a great job and it's gotten me thinking about kind of a similar concept. We do a little, a little bit of work in marshes and living shorelines and kind of some of the things that some of the way that you looked at the problem and kind of trying to apply that to a different um, environment. So you um, may be, you may be borrowing and citing very strongly your, your, your research there. Yeah. Awesome. So like how many people sat around the table and had this discussion, like what kind of, what kind of team did you guys have to put this kind of product together? Hmm. So it was me and my three primary supervisors and another two co-supervisors that were involved in this. Um, so, you know, we had our discussions internally, but then what we did was go to stakeholders. So we actually went to the Northern Beaches Council, Mandurah City Council in Western Australia, and we're like, hey, does this make sense? Um what would a tool like this mean for you prior to an, an event? Could you actually use this? What types of things would you like to see? And that was kind of part of an iteration process where we got some really useful feedback um, in terms of, no, we don't really need to kind of look at what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, we just want to know, you know, is there a big storm and how should we prepare for it? Um, Things like, uh, we'd rather the model be conservative. So we'd rather have a false alarm than potentially miss an event. Um, and talking to them was kind of really useful in getting my head around that, yes, this is actually something that people are going to want to use uh, in, in practice. So having that feedback of actually talking to the people who might use a product um, was was really important. And I don't think potentially we do that enough. You know, we always kind of 
us siloed in our little offices and doing our own work. But to- actually going out and being able to talk to people um, who are on the ground is, is always very helpful. It's a different part of the job that maybe not all of us uh, think about right away. Uh, mm, maybe mm. you know it requires that's that's what is what are the three types of teams there's like the it's like multidisciplinary interdisciplinary and then transdisciplinary um maybe we've been focusing too much on the multidisciplinary where it's just like a bunch of talking heads with their specific backgrounds at the table and just offering ideas and feedback and things versus interdisciplinary is those same people are now learning from each other and incorporating each other's perspective and background and their knowledge and learning about their background and knowledge in order to help inform and continue to formulate the, um, you know, their, their, you know, an engineer and an economist are sitting next to each other. They're sharing ideas and they're both thinking about each other's respective, um, you know, backgrounds, you know? Yeah. I can tell you I've never felt more dumb than doing my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the thing, right? The more you know, the more you realize you don't know anything. Exactly. It's like that, but every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, you know what? Um, as someone who's been, I only got a master's, but as someone who's been out of my master's program, out of schools for five years, at least for me, um, it never, that feeling never goes away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the research environment. <laughs> Definitely agree on that. So this tool is, you know, we were saying that it's a tool, right? So we're, uh, we have a regional scale coastal hazard forecasting system. And you mentioned that people can click on certain things. So where can they click on it and where can this be found? Where has this uh, transitioned into? Uh, right now, it's still on my computer um, at the lab, <laughs> so it's in what we're saying private beta at the moment. Um, so we still have a couple of issues to sort out, um, but the intention is kind of by mid this year, we'd be able to you know, send a link to people and they'd be able to see, okay, this is what the forecast looks like for the next seven days uh, in, in Australia, at least. Um, and that's, yeah. Seven days, huh? Yeah, yeah. So if there's going to be potential erosion or coastal flooding within the next seven days, um, this website should be able to show you. Now, whether uh, whether how accurate that forecast is is, a, is another issue. Um, you know, seven days is probably pushing it a little bit in terms of whether you can forecast beach erosion um, to that lead time. But uh, at least it gives you an idea of what potentially could happen. And you're ingesting data in real time all the time? Yep. So we're, yeah, so we're doing kind of continuous rolling forecasts twice a day. Um, and so we're getting a wave forecast from our Australian Bureau of Meteorology. We're combining that with. Um, topography and bathymetry measurements um, over th- over the two regions, and we're calculating a potential coastal flooding and beach erosion category of of, of hazard. Is yeah, it's all it's one of the things that I, a question that I was gonna. I mean, this is all dependent, right? Because you're not 
you're not you're not doing your own wave forecasts or water level forecasts. But you know, one of the one of the potential applications with a simplistic or simplified model is the idea of going from deterministic forecasts into probabilistic. And, you know, that's something that I think can be valuable because it does start to get a handle on the uncertainty. And I'll just say, you know, one of the ways in which we use that at Stevens is not yet in the beach erosion realm, hopefully one day get there, um, but in the coastal flooding area. So we, you know, we have a storm surge system where we ingest weather forecasts from all of the European, the European model, the U.S. models, the Canadian model, and we use that to force a storm surge system. So we get this range of scenarios, and it can be very useful. As you said, uh, agencies tend to be want you to be on the conservative side. Um, you know, by providing that you know potential worst case scenario or you know boundaries, you know ninety fifth percentile or whatever you want to use, uh, that can be helpful. And I think that you know certainly as data sources become more available, um, or even, you know, create your own models that, um, something like your system would lend itself to that, um, quite easily, um, which I think is another great potential extension way down the road. Yeah. I mean, uncertainty is definitely something that we have had on our, um, laundry lists of tasks that we want to incorporate. Um, the other is kind of real time data assimilation data assimilation so currently we only look at so we assume the beach is where it was in i think 2018 is the last survey so the pre-storm beach conditions are what they were at, at 2018 but obviously that's not right but if we can use satellite derived shorelines so with satellites you can get an image every, you know, between three and seven days, depending on clouds and, and, and whatnot. Um, but if we can use that, if we can use that satellite image to update our model and get a better representation of what's actually happening at the beach right before the storm, um, that could be a really exciting development. Yeah, definitely. So, I did want to ask you real quick about the three-minute thesis because I think this is kind of an interesting. Uh, I, I saw that on your, I think it was on your website. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about what that was? Uh, yeah, so I don't know if they have this in the states, but uh, in Australia, at least, they have this. Um, they have this competition that they <laughs> they make PhD students uh, kind of begrudgingly do because it is a difficult <laughs> task. It is actually a very difficult task to summarize and talk about your thesis uh, in three minutes. So what they do is there's like a little competition day where everyone kind of get, goes up and, and gives their three minute thesis talk. Um, obviously when I was going through, it was in COVID, so I had to do mine online, but yeah, you need to summarize your, your thesis in three minutes and you get some really good presentations um, in terms of the creativity that people have to draw from and, you know, take something that's really technical, really detailed and involved and uh, present it to, you know, someone who has no idea about their field. Um, and yeah, it's, it's quite an important skill to have, um, I feel. 
I think I think it's a great I think it's a great tool to have. I mean, it it prepares you for real life situations when uh, your 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 grandma asks you about what exactly you do, and so now you have that three minute thesis to lean on, and you get you, you've already done that done that uh, translation, right? So now it's a, it becomes an easier conversation. It's good for cocktail parties, I guess, too, as well. Yeah, not even your grandma or your cocktail party. It's it's you know feeds right into the how do you communicate this to the to the public, right? Feeds right into the the thesis overall and your overall objective. Yeah, and that's you know I think one thing that like when I went into engineering, I didn't think I'd be you know I don't know having to work with people or communicate my results. <laughs> Little did you <laughs> yeah. know, but it seems like that's all I'm doing. Um, it's such a big and important part of being able to effectively work in a team and deliver results and give some give the people what they want, basically. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't want to say I felt cheated going into engineering like this, but uh, it definitely has been a learning, a, a very positive learning experience for me. Did you also think that you wouldn't have to do any technical writing or like any writing? Yeah, writing, the amount of writing was a bit of a shock as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, so Chris, one of the things we, we like to ask is, since this is a podcast for students and new professionals, um, do you have any advice that you would give, since you're just completing your PhD, any advice you might give students as they embark, perhaps, at the very beginning stages of a, a PhD or graduate studies? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I was having a think about this. Um, and the way I've approached I don't know how or the way I've approached making decisions in terms of what to do or, or, or what I want to do is to go with the like if I'm trying to decide between something I will ask myself what am I going to regret the least uh, in terms of whether it's starting a PhD or starting a new job um, if I have a new opportunity it's yeah it's what am I going to regret the least uh, in terms of which one I pick um, whether if it's the right decision or not it's uh, it's doesn't matter but yeah um, and the other kind of advice for I guess masters or PhD students who are doing uh, a thesis um, is to enjoy the good times and keep going through the difficult times. Um, I will say the last kind of six months of my thesis were quite difficult um, in terms of just going through and writing everything up um, because you've been working on the same project for, well, I had been working on the same project for three and a half years at that point. And it was a bit of a slog to pull everything together and finish it all up. But I don't know. I think it's a test of your stubbornness. How stubborn are you to, <laughs> to finish it up? Um, so my advice would be just don't give up. Interestingly enough, that's actually how I ended up in Australia. So your, your, your struggle, you're not alone in that. And I was three years into my PhD when I was like, I just need to, I need a break and just happen to, be lucky enough to uh, attend a, 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 a meeting where they were talking about the Fulbright program and was able to use that to make my way over to University of Queensland and, and work there in Brisbane for a year 
on well, stuff related awesome. to my, yeah, it was great. Cause it was stuff that was still related to my PhD. So it wasn't like I was taking a complete break, but it was nice to get that com- a different perspective, right? So you, instead of talking to my advisor back at the university of Florida, I was working with Peter Nielsen in that group at UQ. And like, that was the breath of fresh air that I needed to kind of push me across the finish line. So I completely get that, you know, that, that burnout feeling and having to kind of really work hard to push past and get through. And, and, and that's something that I think almost every PhD struggles with. So anybody out there who is struggling with that, words of advice are very sound. Just keep fighting through it, you know, and just make it to that finish line. Yeah. And one other thing is to, I would recommend having a good relationship with the other PhD students as well, because <laughs> they are the ones that know exactly what you're going through. Um, and so having, like, I was really lucky to have a really good bunch of people that were going through at the same time. Um, and it just made the whole experience uh, a lot more positive. Um, so, yeah. Make friends with the other students is, is the other piece of advice. Yes. Introverts unite. Uh, the people around you, that's at least what I've learned from being a professional, a new professional. It's it's really the people around you that can make or break your experience, uh, especially in the long term. So if you know, you're somewhere for a few years and you're just not feeling it with the people around you, just, you know, make changes uh, to to change change your environment change the people that you have around you and yeah definitely definitely it makes all the difference for your mood you know and and longevity so i totally feel that so what are your future plans uh you got any new year's resolutions uh where do you i the dreaded (laughs) question where do you see yourself in five years but like where do you see your research going yeah um I guess it is a good time to think about those kind of questions. So my postdoc runs out in March. So I only have a couple of months left to wrap up everything I'm doing at UNSW. Um, But what I have been doing in my spare time, I say spare in inverted commas, but I actually have a part-time job um, at Morden Bay Regional Council. So that's a, a local government council uh, just north of Brisbane, uh, where I'm doing uh, coastal engineering as well. So it's been interesting sitting on the kind of local government stakeholder side, so getting a different perspective on kind of the same problem. Um, and they're great in terms of having an opportunity to continue working on the things I'm interested in. You know, they're obviously interested in hazard um hazard prediction and forecasting so it's i'm looking forward to approaching that from a a different perspective actually um and yeah hopefully time to write some papers about it um but we will see i guess that's fair very cool very cool you know you you have mentioned 
some advice for students beginning their PhDs, you know, what what are you going to regret the least um, in terms of making a decision, which I find very uh, funny and interesting uh, that that's your approach to making decisions. Um, but I guess, you know, just uh, from a standpoint of where, you know, your, your entire journey, where you are now, you're a postdoc, you know, you're working as a postdoc, but also in a local government uh, you've you've done seven years of consulting and then went to your PhD. All in all, you know what advice would you give to a student or even a new professional who is interested in maybe pursuing a career or a position that's similar to yours? Okay, um, I think the most important thing is to always keep learning. There are just so many things that even on a day to day basis that. I'm like, oh, that's a great new reference I haven't heard about or oh, this is how they do things somewhere else um, is to, I don't know, just never be complacent because um, if you're always learning, if you're always picking up new things, it doesn't really matter what's happening around you. You're continuing to develop. You're continuing to improve and, you know, things would work out for you. So in terms of, kind of my advice um i think yeah that just just keep going <laughs> you heard it here folks all the way from sydney australia you know people we're, we're all just people on this planet and we're all just i think that's great advice surviving uh <laughs> also thriving as numerical modelers in the coastal fields go us exactly <laughs> you know global five high five um appreciate it well, Chris, high fives. yeah, high fives all around. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to your research project, especially from a perspective outside of the United States uh, in general. I really love that you're able to bring that perspective to us, John and I, and our listeners. I hope everybody else also enjoyed it. So, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I'm trying to send lots of sun from Australia over to you guys. Oh, please do. Thank you. Well, I mean, I could use some snow right now. Like I'm trying to snowboard this winter and it's <laughs> okay. raining outside. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I need some snow. Anyways, uh, yeah. Thank you all for listening into Going Coastal this month. Uh, really appreciate and having you. If uh, you want to check out more uh, of what Dr. Chris Lehman has coming out in terms of publications or what he's up to, he does have a personal website, uh, lehman.io, and we will link to that in our uh, show notes uh, or episode description below. So if you're interested in following along, feel free to do so. Is that okay? Yeah, that would be great. I should update All it. Right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Keep it updated. You know, you're going to have some some fresh listeners jumping in and seeing what you're doing. So I may or may not have mildly stalked that before this episode to, you know, <laughs> you're doing my research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of our millions of listeners across the United States, um, the ones who actually went to the beach um, growing up, you know, yeah. <laughs> the millions and millions of listeners. Yes. So uh, if you want to learn more, check that out. You can also find him on LinkedIn. You can find John and I on LinkedIn or follow John uh, on Twitter. Uh, the link to that will be also in the episode description. 
In general, if you're interested in joining the Students and New Professionals chapter or learning more about what we're doing, you can join the SNP monthly call on the third Wednesday of each month uh, to get involved. You can email asbpa.snp at gmail.com to get connected. Right around the corner is the ASBPA Coastal Summit from March 21st to March 23rd, taking place in Washington, D.C. Check out ASBPA.org to get registered and learn more. We also have our National Coastal Conference coming up in October. I know it's nine months away, but there's a lot of preparations that need to be had. So make sure you get your abstracts in. Uh, Check out when all the due dates are for abstracts and awards. Uh, That conference will be taking place from October 11th through the 13th in Grand Old Providence, Rhode Island. Last but not least, do you enjoy listening to this podcast? Well, then you can support Going Coastal while also aligning your brand with the ASPPA Students and New Professionals chapter. We'll customize a sponsorship package for you and your company to deliver on your marketing goals and connect with the next generation of coastal pros all those millions of listeners across the U.S. Share your story in top coastal and ocean podcasts and on Coastal News Today. So if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact our producer, wonderful, beloved Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. <laughs>